Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. Thank you so much. I am naturally indebted to And the Oscar goes to... Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy. We're back again. Yay. We took a little break because we're very busy and traveling and such, Uh, but here we are. We're back again. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's silly that we didn't take a break after 20. We should have done it then, but we made it to 21. (laughs) Ah, and then the podcast got too drunk to go on. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Had to recover from its 21st birthday. Sometimes it's good to make sure you're not scheduled the day after your 21st. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, that's a good call. (laughs) Speaking of, uh, this is just a funny story. The set that I was on... um, Hurricane Ida came through and we all got stuck at the studio. (laughs) One of the interns, it happened to be her 21st birthday that night. And she was like, I will never forget this birthday uh, for reasons that I didn't think I wouldn't forget it. (laughs) Yeah, you don't expect to spend your 21st birthday sleeping over at a studio during, you know, a weather lockdown. Yeah. So shout out to you, Alexis. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a little bit crazy in the Phantoms world over here, but we're back to it. Mm-hmm. Ready to keep watching movies and talking about them and maybe taking some time to research them. <laughs> and uh, we haven't mentioned, but this is the 22nd episode and we will be discussing the best picture winner, All the King's Men. And yes. of course, the 22nd Academy Award ceremony. Yes. None of the King's Horses, though. <laughs> okay. Also, for the record, I got this really confused with, what's the movie from the 70s? All the President's Men? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I kept thinking it was that. And I was like, I feel like that was in the 70s, but okay, I'm excited to watch this one. I really like this movie. And it is not the same thing. No, it's not. Anyways. Anyways. So at the beginning of every episode, uh, we give a little update about Penny, our little pup. A pup date. So, as we mentioned, we've been doing some traveling. I was on the East Coast for a television show for a while, um, and we just traveled back to L.A. Um, and I know we talked about a little bit about Penny traveling, but she had a big day of travel. Yeah. I flew to visit him because he was staying with my family on the East Coast. So we had a little family reunion. We saw some friends. And then the three of us finally reunited and we're ready to travel back home to L.A. Yeah. And it's so surprising every time we travel with her because she's just so good at traveling. Yes. Shockingly good. Uh, We, of course, have made the cross-country flight many times as we have family on the East Coast and live on the West Coast. Um, and Penny just takes it in stride. She goes in her little travel crate and she really loves it in there. It's nice and safe for her. Yeah. It's good that we updated the travel crate because now it has the sides that open up. So when we're hanging out at the airport or something, she can like lay out full length as big as she wants. And it's funny whenever anybody sees her, I mean, everybody gets so excited about dogs, but especially Penny. I feel, because she's just so cute. She's so cute. And they see her, and we sat next to this older woman. (laughs) And, of course, whenever you walk onto a plane with a dog, everyone's like, oh, is there a dog in there? Oh, is there a dog in that crate? And then Penny's, like, staring out with her big eyes. And they're like, oh, so pretty. Is that a cavalier? (laughs) And then you put Penny down, and then, you know, she goes under the seat, and they're like, oh, boy, that's so small. And What's she going to do? And then, of course, like, she just sleeps the whole time. She's totally comfortable. And then the woman just kept checking in on Penny. I and know. she was like, I was like how's Penny oh. doing? She kept like leaning over to me and wanting <laughs> to take a peek at her and wanting to make sure she was okay. Yeah, I was like, thank God I'm sitting next to the window because I cannot <laughs> deal with like talking to people. And I get really worried about Penny and traveling and all this stuff. So I would have snapped. But you were so nice to her and like kept her informed oh, she of Penny's was nice. updates. Yeah. 
And I went to the bathroom, and when I came back, the woman was like, she was looking for you. She kept trying to turn around and see if you were coming back, but she was doing fine. She's always the most popular girl. Mm-hmm. And she here she is again, sleeping right next to us. Yeah. Always yeah. sleeping. It's nice that she's at an age where she can sleep when we travel, because the first few times she was a little anxious and stuff, but... Well, and she was a little puppy. Yeah. As they say, there's nothing a little Benny can't fix. Oh, boy. By Benny, I mean Benadryl. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the pup date. (laughs) We're all home. We're all together. Yeah, good job, Penny. You flew like a champion. So, on to the film, All the King's Men. Uh, I'll start us off with a recap, of course. Great. Willie Stark starts his political career running for county treasurer. His platform is attacking the corrupt figures already in the government and convinces the Hick vote to join his side. He loses the election, but is poised for a very successful political career regardless. He loses his first run at governor, but easily wins four years later. He gets involved in shady and corrupt dealings himself, becoming exactly what he ran against years earlier. His bad decisions catch up with him, and he is assassinated for his dealings, his attempts and career becoming ultimately meaningless. Womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if this movie was really like a revolutionary idea when it came out. Because to me, this feels like a story that we've just seen replayed over and over. And I think it may just be like, I don't know, exposure to certain things, you know. But like I did a play in a, a few years ago that was about Mayor Rizzo, who was a mayor in Philadelphia. And it was like this exact same story because that was his political experience, too. Mm-hmm. And so it's really weird to watch this movie and be like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, this happens over and over and over. You got this like guy who thinks he's doing the good thing. He's representing the outcast. And then he becomes a bully and he becomes everything he hates. And he's a bad guy from the start, but he doesn't think he is, you know, like. Yeah, I feel like it's a classic story trope. In a Uh way, like there's lots of parables and tales and fables throughout history, Greek myths, you know, even where somebody rises up to do good and (laughs) does not. Yeah, it was interesting to me to watch it in this context, like, you know, 1950s context. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is due. I mean, we'll get into it in my section. It's sort of based on a historical figure. Um, But I think the tide is changing in America Mm -hmm. politically, for sure. I think throughout American history, well, besides in regards to the Civil War and slavery, I would feel like on the whole, America is much more united politically throughout American history up to this point. Um, And I would say from post-World War II to now, America is much more divided than, like, politically Mm -hmm. than previous to Mm. World War II. Mm -hmm. Well, and I also think that politics become a really important talking point in media in a way that they hadn't been. And I I mean, there's lots of reasons for that. Part of it is the code, but also part of it has to do with the McCarthyism and the, like, need for it, the, like political things that are ruining people's lives and so people can't not talk about them yeah and as we've been talking started talking about um the red scare and the house un-american committee on activities un-american i don't remember anyways during the 40s and 50s when the united states government is trying to weed out communists from america and hollywood there's just such an attack of ideas um after world war ii it's so much more about the ideas are bad and how do we root out the bad ideas before they become action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll continue that conversation yeah. as we talk about the film. So why don't you dive into the ceremony? Yeah, for sure. Um, so today we are talking about the 22nd Academy Awards. They were held on March 23rd, 1950. It's so weird that we're in the 50s. Wow, 1950. <laughs> and to think that the first one was in 1929. I know. We've been doing a lot of these and they've had a lot of ceremonies at this point. Kind of crazy. If you remember last week uh, for our Hamlet episode, I talked about how the Academy didn't have a theater. And so they held it at their Academy theater, which was not suited for that kind of a thing. That was mostly because major studios were being accused of 
uh, swaying the votes. Bribery. And bribery. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. <laughs> By, you know, donating lots and lots of money so that the Academy could do a big presentation and have a big ceremony and have it at a nice place and all these things. Um, and so they all got scared when that those accusations were being made. They didn't want to lose any awards because of that. So they all pulled their money and the Academy didn't know what to do. So they had to figure out somewhere to go real quick. So this year, they kind of are like, it's fine. <laughs> Refreshed a little bit. Yeah. So they held the ceremonies at the RKO Pantages Theater. Mm. And this is going to be the home of the awards for quite a while. Um, and the rest of the award ceremonies are going to be held at different theaters. And one would think if there was real bribery behind the scenes that RKO might win Best Picture over the next few years, but they do not. Alack, that does not happen. <laughs> RKO, <laughs> notorious for being one of the big five, but basically only winning two yeah. uh, Best Picture awards. Yeah, that's the way it goes, I guess. But they had all the distribution rights for Disney, so they were swimming in cash. So Yeah, sometimes wins are not Academy Awards. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this ceremony was hosted by Paul Douglas, um, who was a popular radio announcer at the time, um, and he also has some films. He was in the 1950 Angels in the Outfields. Huh. Um, so that was kind of like one of the popular movies that came out this year. He was from Philadelphia, mm. hey, and he attended Yale Drama. So he hosts the awards this year. Um, This was the last year that all the nominees for Best Picture were in black and white. Wow. Going forward, there will at least be one color nominee. Well, and what's interesting is that there's up to 22 years of this, there's Mm -hmm. still only one Best Picture winner that was in color. I know. Gone with the Wind. Yeah. I think that's wild. Yeah. They really pushed the color films really hard early on. Yeah. Like in 39, they had several color films, but, you know... And, and they've already uh, discovered the way to use like one strip Technicolor too, yeah. mm-hmm. thanks to the second uh, title in the Lassie series. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Lassie. <laughs> yeah, well, and there have been other nominees that have been in color throughout history, but this is the very last time that all of the nominees will be black and white. So yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Um, it's also the first year in which every film that was nominated for Best Picture won multiple Oscars. Hmm. So that's kind of a new thing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And it helps that there are only five Best Picture nominees. Yes, and most of the categories are five or less. So right. that makes it a lot easier for the winners to kind of sweep up a bunch of different awards. Yeah, and we're moving into a time when there are going to be less overall films nominated mm-hmm. and each film receives more nominations. Yes. Yeah, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. I I like the idea of keeping it open so that lots of films can win different things. And there's still a lot less categories right now. Of course, we've just added costuming, finally, after two decades of the Academy Awards. (laughs) Um, But they still have a lot of other things uh, yet to add that mm-hmm. we have in our modern day Academy ceremonies. Yeah. Well, and there's some categories that people who weren't nominated for Best Picture can win because, for example, like cinematography is split between black and white and color. So mm-hmm. the color films are not nominated for Best Picture. So like there's some additional stuff that way. But yeah, yeah it's a bit strange still. Honestly, there's not a whole lot to tell you about this ceremony. It's kind of just a traditional ceremony in Mm. a lot of regards. So I just wanted to take some time because uh, this particular ceremony, there's an honorary award given to Fred Astaire for his immense contributions to film history. And so I thought it would be good to talk about him a little bit because we haven't talked about many musical performers um, and dancers and that kind of thing. And his contributions are just immense, especially because we've like gone through this like amazing revolution in movie musicals and they're like the most popular for most of the different um, studios. And so I figure it's worth kind of sharing about his life and his career and his contributions. Great. Fred Astaire was born to parents Joanna or Anne Austerlitz and Fritz or Frederick Austerlitz in 1899. His parents were immigrants to the U.S. Uh, They moved in 1893, and they arrived in New York, but they moved to Omaha right away so that his father could pursue the beer brewing industry. His mother hated Omaha, as she did not want to be there. (laughs) And she dreamt of leaving through her children's talents. She noticed right away that her daughter, Adele, and her son, uh, Fred, that was his nickname, 
uh, that they were both immensely talented, specifically her daughter Adele. She was a very intuitive dancer and singer. And so his mother decided that she would create a vaudeville act for the two of them, which was very popular at the time. It was yeah. a great way to like do the circuits and make a little bit of money and stuff. Um, Fred did not want to take dance lessons. He did not want to do any of this, but he mimicked his sister and picked up a lot of her skill sets. And so he was able to dance really well from a young age and had a lot of that intuitive instinct as well. Mm. And probably also like why he was such a good partner dancer. too. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Um, Yeah. And he took up the clarinet, the piano and the accordion during this time as well. He was an extremely musical child. That's a fun (laughs) uh, trio of instruments. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, they're not super related, I guess. But yeah, pretty fun for a little act. Um, Their father lost his job. And so they moved back to New York in an attempt to pursue the children's career full time. So that became the whole family's mission. Uh, Their mother decided to change their last name to Astaire at this point because she was very concerned that uh, since their last name was Austerlitz, it would remind people of the Battle of Austerlitz. And she also wanted a very Hmm. like American sounding name. So they went with Astaire and they became the Astaire duo. Their first act that Adele and Fred did together was called Juvenile Artists Presenting an Electric Musical Toe Dancing Novelty, during which Fred wore a top hat and tails during the first half and then a lobster outfit in the second. Ah, perfect. (laughs) Uh, They always put him in a top hat because he was short. And so they wanted to give him a little bit of extra height. So they always gave him a top hat. Uh, He was the younger one. Yes. Yeah. yeah, His sister was was a couple years older. Um, they debuted this act at a tryout theater in Keyport, New Jersey, uh, and the local paper wrote about it, quote, the Astaires are the greatest child act in vaudeville, which, of course, the, their mother was ecstatic about. She was very, very happy. And their father landed them a major contract to play the Orpheum Circuit in the Midwest and the South. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was a huge deal for their family. But... <laughs> Over this time, Adele grew three inches taller than Fred, and so they decided to take a two-year break for him to catch up. Oh. They also were concerned about getting caught by the child labor laws that were happening. (laughs) Whoopsies. Whoopsie-daisies. So they took a two-year break, and then when they returned, they decided to start incorporating tap dancing into their routine because Fred was enamored by um, Bill Bojangles Robinson and John Bobble Sublet who were the two um, most highly paid black entertainers at the time. And they both were innovating amazing tap styles. And so he was just in love with their performances and wanted to be like them. And so he started to integrate that into their routine. They also became really enamored with um, Vernon and Irene Castle, who in the early 1900s started to popularize uh, ballroom styles, tango, waltz, Mm. that sort of thing. They brought it back into like popular styles of dancing. And so Adele and Fred began to learn those and incorporate that into their routine as well. And then one of the most important and like formative things in his life was that at age 14, uh, this is 1916 at this time, Fred started to take on the musical responsibilities for the act. And he happened to have a chance meeting with George Gershwin, Mm. who at the time was working as a son plugger for Jerome H. Remick's music publishing company. And they both have stated repeatedly that this interaction, this meeting profoundly affected both of them on their quest because they were both people who were in pursuit of perfection in their craft, but also novelty. They both wanted to do something extremely original. And so they really like inspired each other in their different fields, which Mm. is really cool. Yeah, very cool. And I'll talk about this in a minute, but they end up working together together again so that's really neat um the stairs had their big break on broadway in 1917 with the musical review over the top which was a patriotic musical review that they eventually performed for the allied troops as well which is kind of a good way to break in i feel like during that time um they had a couple more broadway and london performances and this included uh george and ira gershwin's lady be good and funny face oh wow they were the original people who did that yeah During their time together, it's noted that Fred's sharp choreography and his attention to detail, he did most of the choreography for their duo throughout their time together. Um, And his choreography really highlighted Adele and showed off her humor, her like her sparkle, like the things that make a person really engaging and like enchanting on the stage. And that was something that he was really well noted for, but didn't get attention for at that time. What a Hmm. good partner he was to making the woman in the duo look really really good Mm -hmm. Um, but eventually he started to become the main attraction because his dancing would outshine hers he was just he just 
far exceeded her abilities. And at this time, his tap dancing was recognized uh, as one of the best in the world. Um, In 1930, Robert Blenchley wrote, I don't think that I will plunge the nation into war by stating that Fred is the greatest tap dancer in the world. (laughs) Uh, During their time in London, uh, Fred studied piano at the Guildhall School of Music alongside his friend and future colleague, Noel Coward. Hmm. So they ended up working together as well at different times in life. Mm-hmm. After the success of Funny Face, uh, the duo tested at Paramount for the film for the first make of the movie. Mm. Um, but apparently they did not like them very much. Oh, They didn't really translate their duo chemistry from stage to screen. Personally, uh, I think part of that is because they were brother-sister. Mm. Like, I feel like that's kind of hard to communicate, like, uh, on the screen, like a romantic, you know, mm-hmm. relationship. <laughs> the pair split in 1932 when Adele got married, but Fred really wanted to keep performing, and so that year he performed in The Gay Divorce, which eventually was made into the film The Gay Divorcee. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took a lot of time for him to adjust to finding new partners and working with new people. Uh, one of his first partners, Claire Lucet, is credited with teaching him how to create romance within his dancing. So she's quoted as continually saying to him, quote, come on, Fred, I'm not your sister, you know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and so he credits her with a lot of his ability to evoke emotion, specifically like romantic feelings. And that's one of the things that he's best known for in his film dancing is these like romantic duo, waltzes, mm. tangos, that kind of thing. Yeah. The footage of Astaire performing The Gay Divorce in 1933 is the very earliest footage that we have of his dancing. Um, And then in 1933, he felt like he wanted to go to Hollywood. Mm. You know, he was kind of done with New York and London and was ready to go out west. There's an old Hollywood folklore that he did a screen test (laughs) for RKO Pictures, but the screen test is lost, so we don't know what the actual, like how good or bad he was. We don't know what people actually said, but it's reported that it read, or that the the report on the screen test read, quote, can't sing, can't act, balding, can dance a little. Hmm. <laughs> and then Astaire later went on to insist that it actually said, quote, can't act, slightly bald, also dances, quote. Oh. <laughs> so who knows? David O. Selznick was the one who signed him for RKO and commissioned the test. And he said at the time, quote, I am uncertain about the man, but I feel, in spite of his enormous ears and bad chin line, that his charm is so tremendous that it comes through even on this wretched test, quote. Oh my! So he really must have bombed. That's so kind weird. Of the I mean, he must consensus. have just been so used to being on the stage that it didn't translate at first to film. Yeah, but he didn't have any hardship because in 1933 he tested, and that same year R.K. lent him out to MGM to dance as himself, like not as a character, as Fred Astaire, uh, with Joan Crawford in this very successful musical film, Dancing Lady. So then that was a massive success. And when he returned to RKO, he immediately got fifth billing on the film Flying Down to Rio, Hmm. directly after Ginger Rogers, who got fourth billing. And they were discovered as an amazing pair together. Uh Um, Variety uh, attributed the success of the film to Astaire, saying, quote, The main point of Flying Down to Rio is the screen promise of Fred Astaire. He's assuredly a bet after this one, for he's distinctly likable on the screen. The mic is kind to his voice, and as a dancer, he remains in a class by himself. The latter observation will be no news to his profession, which has long admitted that Astaire starts dancing where the others stop hoofing. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, People loved the pairing with Ginger Rogers, but of course he was really hesitant to get into another long-term dancing duo with someone because he'd just gotten out of the duo with his sister. (laughs) And he says, quote, I don't mind making another picture with her, but as for this term, quote, team idea, it's out. I've just managed to live down one partnership and I don't want to be bothered with one anymore. But uh, he was persuaded to continue with her, probably because of the financial success of their duo. Yeah. Uh, He ended up making nine films with her. um, And he choreographed with Hermes Pan for most of them. For The Gay Divorcee, for Roberta, Top Hat, Follow the Fleet, Swing Time, Shall We Dance, and Carefree. Six out of the nine Astaire Rogers musicals became the biggest moneymakers of all time for RKO. Wow. And they're still considered to be extremely prestigious and like many artists were jealous of the fact that they got to make these films. Yeah. Um, And as we talked about, RKO may not win a lot of awards, but they certainly had some success on their hands. Yeah. They are the biggest money-making duo um, of the like 
30s and 40s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and their films were immensely successful. Yeah. Their partnership elevated them to massive stardom. And Catherine Hepburn said of them, quote, he gives her class and she gives him sex appeal. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, it's like the perfect partnership. Another thing that I thought was pretty remarkable was that at this time, Astaire was able to negotiate to receive a percentage of the film's profits mm-hmm. uh, along with his regular contract, which was something that actors very, very rarely did. Mm. It was pretty unheard of at the time. And so that was like one of his contributions to like actor contracts. Mm. Nice. He left RKO in 1939 to freelance, which also was remarkable because we've been talking about the studio model all this time. People don't just float around, but he had the skill set to do so. So he decided yeah. to leave the studio model and just go where people wanted him. He and Carol Lombard. Yeah, good for them. Two heroes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he starred in the Broadway Melody of 1940, Second Chorus, and then, of course, as we know, Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby, later Blue Skies with Bing Crosby. He also made two pictures with Rita Hayworth, uh, You'll Never Get Rich and You Were Never Lovelier. Also, he was in Academy Award-nominated films Yolanda and the Thief, Zigfield's Follies, and he also decided to branch out a little bit and do the drama The Sky's the Limit, which was a war drama. Huh. And audience was, were very confused as yeah, to I why bet. he was in it. <laughs> and it didn't get great reviews because people were like, why isn't he singing and dancing? <laughs> which he does do in the film, but it's a drama version. Mm. And so was, people were like, What? <laughs> And during the 40s, he realized that he didn't really like doing films with Bing Crosby, not because of anything. He just didn't like that in both of the films he was with him. He lost the girl to Bing Crosby. Hmm. Didn't like how that made his image look. Well, and to be honest, Bing Crosby is probably more pop, like oh, definitely. much more popular. Yeah. And he outshines him in a lot of ways. So yeah, he consistently thought his career was over and he continued to dub Pretty much every dance he did as his farewell dance, thinking it would be his last. You know, that was kind of the way he was. And he has so much, like, of his career left at this point. Oh, yeah, no, I'm going to get... It's just ridiculous. Finally, he officially nominated Putting on the Ritz and Blue Skies as his final dance, and he retired. Uh, And then in... What year was that? 1947. Oh, my gosh. And during 1947, he founded the Fred Astaire Dance Studios with his retirement time. Of course, retirement did not last long when he was asked to replace an injured Gene Kelly in Easter Parade opposite Judy Garland just a couple years later. He continued performing in musicals, mostly at MGM, until 1957, when once again he announced his retirement. And at this point, his legacy was he had done 30 films in 25 years. Wow. Which is wild. And this retirement is sort of true. He stops making lots and lots of movies regularly, but he continues to work. Like, I don't understand why he calls it retirement because he's like, all right, no more big studio movies. But he does TV. He does specials. Like, And to say he's done in 57, literally in 1957... He was in Funny Face with right. Audrey Hepburn. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but he just decided that that was the end of his uh, official career. So silly. So he continued to perform, essentially. Uh, he won Emmys for his musical specials in 58, 59, 60, and 68. Ah, oh, what a good retirement. I know, right? His uh, special evening with Fred Astaire in 1958 was the very first television broadcast to be pre-recorded on color tape, which oh, is pretty wow. cool. Uh, He won the Emmy for Single Best Performance by an Actor. But, of course, this choice was considered a little bit controversial, and it received some backlash because many believed that his dancing in the special was not the type of, quote, acting for which the award was designed. And at one point, he offered to give back the award. Oh, my. the Television Academy refused to consider that. So weird. I know. Very strange. His official final musical role was in Finian's Rainbow, which was directed by Francis Ford Coppola in 1968 oh okay um he performed in other dramas and i mean he says his career ends in 1957 but in 1978 he received his only academy award nomination for best supporting actor in the towering inferno wow yeah Uh, so weird i know and he does dance in this movie but it's not a musical Mm. he dances with jennifer jones and he continued to do other small projects reunion dances he dances again with gene kelly you know he reunites with bing crosby multiple times he does santa claus is coming to town in the 70s of course a classic yeah so like there's a lot going on anyways he has an illustrious career and so of all these things i wanted to wrap this up with his contributions to 
film and television technology and dance within film because they there's two things that he is very specifically credited for uh, innovating. The first thing is that he... One of his philosophies was that the dancers and the dancers must have complete autonomy over the dance and that filmmakers are getting to watch you dance, not the other way around. You're not dancing for the camera. They're getting to watch you. That was like one of his big philosophies. The two things that he's credited with teaching filmmakers about is first, he insisted that a closely tracking dolly camera film a dance routine in as few shots as possible, typically just four to eight cuts, uh, while holding the dancers in full view at all times. This gave Mm. the illusion of an almost stationary camera filming an entire dance in a single shot. Mm -hmm. Uh, He famously said about this, quote, either the camera will dance or I will. And this was really highly contrasted by most other musical sequences at the time, which were filled with aerial shots, quick takes, um, zooms on areas of the body, such as chorus line rows of arms or legs. Like if you think about musicals at the time, like that's kind of what they were focusing on was like creating this kind of chaotic style. But he was really focused on watching the dance as a full experience rather than like quick cuts. Hmm. He maintained this policy from his film, The Gay Divorcee, in 1934, until his very last film musical, Finian's Rainbow, in 1968, when director Francis Ford Coppola overruled him. Oh, interesting. So final dancing film he got overruled. <laughs> his second innovation involved the context of the dance. He was adamant that all song and dance routines be integral to the plot lines of the films. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of using dance as a separate spectacle to kind of like cut away from the story of the film or escape or something, he used it to move the plot along. He thought that was essential. Smart. Yeah. So those were the two contributions that he made to filmmaking and specifically mu- movie musicals, dance sequences, that kind of thing. He was regarded as a perfect performer. His technical control, his sense of rhythm astonished filmmakers whenever they had to work with him. One of the stories that I thought was really interesting was long after the filming and photography for the solo dance number, I Want to Be a Dancing Man uh, for the 1952 feature, The Bell of New York. They had filmed the whole sequence and they realized that they didn't like how threadbare the set was. They thought he needed a more elevated costume. And so they decided to redo the entire sequence. Um, hmm. So they redress the set. They give him a new costume. They reshoot the whole thing. And in 1994 documentary, That's Entertainment 3, shows the two performances side by side. And the split screen could be placed on top of each other because everything about his performance is perfectly identical. Hmm. Frame for frame, Uh, down to the subtlest gestures, everything is exactly the same. That's what a perfect performer he was. And his style was that he demanded really intense rehearsal, really lengthy rehearsals, um, which became very burdensome to most people around him. But then when they go to shoot the actual number, it would be like one day of shooting, very, very quick. It was extremely expedient. And he ended up like helping with the cost of the film a lot because he didn't require a lot of time on set. Hmm. He would kind of go in, do it and be done. Um, But of course he, as I mentioned, he just agonized over everything. And he frequently asked people if he was doing okay, if they liked it, like asking for acceptance from everyone basically. And Vincent Minnelli, who worked with him many times said, quote, he lacks confidence to the most enormous degree of all the people in the world. He will not even go to see his rushes. He always thinks he is no good, quote. And Aster said of himself, quote, I've never yet got anything 100% right. Still, it's never as bad as I think it is, quote. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So anyways, that's what I had to share about him. I just, you know, his career is remarkable and he contributed so much to the things that we love. And we're about to get into the 50s and go through a lot of really huge movie musicals. And so, you know, I think it's worth honoring him and the academy thought so too yeah good for them so just to wrap up my time here i wanted to go through some of these awards real quick and share who won what for this year uh as we mentioned slash the title of uh, this episode all the king's men wins best picture joseph l mankowitz wins best director for a letter to three wives best actor goes to broderick crawford for all the king's men as willie stark best actress goes to olivia de Havilland mm-hmm. for the heiress back on that competition with her Best Supporting Actor goes to Dean Jagger for 12 O'Clock High. Best Supporting Actress goes to Mercedes Cambridge for All the King's Men as Sadie Burke. Uh, So Best Screenplay, uh, and this is Adapted Screenplay, goes to A Letter to Three Wives from Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Best Story in Screenplay, which is the title that they're using for this particular year for Best Original Screenplay, considering both the story and the screenplay. 
so Best Story and Screenplay, goes to Battleground from Robert Peroche. Best Motion Picture Story, which, as we've mentioned, refers to general story, not script, <laughs> goes to The Stratton Story, Douglas Morrow. Sorry, just want to jump in here. I noticed that the um, best screenplay, which is the adapted, is uh, the movie A Letter to Three Wives, um, adapted from the story Letter to Five Wives. (laughs) (laughs) I was way too many. (laughs) Don't know the story behind that, but just thought that it was very funny and worth mentioning. (laughs) Best documentary short subject goes to two films this year, A Chance to Live and So Much for So Little. The vote was split for that one. Hmm. Best live action short subject one reel goes to Aquatic House Party. Best live action short subject two reel goes to Van Gogh. Best animated short film goes to For Scent and Mental Reasons. Scent and Mental is split and mm-hmm. scent is like nose scent. That is a Looney Tunes short. <laughs> Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to The Heiress. Best scoring of a musical picture goes to On the Town, hmm. which is another classic musical. Best original song goes to... Baby, it's cold outside. Oh, wow. From Neptune's Daughter. I didn't even know it was in that film, but there you go. Hmm. Best sound recording goes to 12 O'Clock High. Best art direction black and white goes to The Heiress. Best art direction color goes to Little Women. Mm-hmm. The next adaptation of the film. Uh, this one is the one where um, Elizabeth Taylor plays Amy. Yes, I will mention this one. Oh, okay, great. Uh, and that does go to Cedric Gibbons as well. Mm-hmm. Best Cinematography Black and White goes to Battleground. Best Cinematography Color goes to She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, which I'm guessing they were able to show that she wore a yellow ribbon. Ah, So great. Good for them. (laughs) Best Costume Design Black and White goes to The Heiress. Best Costume Design Color goes to Adventures of Don Juan. And just uh, wanted to mention um, that one for The Heiress went to Edith Head, of course, who is the record holder for most Academy Award wins for a costume designer. Mm -hmm. That is her first. Hooray. Let's get used to it. Best film editing goes to Champion, and best special effects goes to Mighty Joe Yan. And, of course, there are some honorary awards given out. Uh, One is given to Fred Astaire for, quote, his unique artistry and his contributions to the technique of musical pictures. One is given to Cecil B. DeMille for, quote, distinguished motion picture pioneer for 37 years of brilliant showmanship. Hmm. He kind of has been a long time coming for something like this. Yeah, and he really did not get any other awards like he didn't win competitive awards yeah and finally uh an honorary award is given to gene hersholt uh in quote recognition of his services to the academy during four terms as president oh, nice. he's the president right now as yeah. well um and as i've mentioned before uh foreign language film gets its own separate category for some reason and there's no other nominees for it it's just a, a winner that's announced to everybody uh, and this year the best foreign language film goes to the bicycle thief from mm-hmm. italy and the Academy Juvenile Award goes to Bobby Driscoll, who we talked about a little bit because he was in Son of the South. He's also in uh, yes. a couple other popular films at the time. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I have to share about all this stuff today. Uh, thanks for kind of sitting through my uh, Fred Astaire monologue there. Uh-huh. But, you know, I think that's pretty fun information and it's fun to learn about people who contribute to the making of these films. Yeah. So anyways, let's take a little break here and then we can come back and uh, hear what you have to share about the 1949 year. Aha. And we're back. Welcome to the year in film of 1949. Starting out with some births. Uh, we have this year Lawrence Kasdan. Andy Kaufman, John Belushi, Victor Garber, John Shea, Jessica Lange, Jim Broadbent, Meryl Streep, Shelley Duvall, Julian Fellows, Shelley Long, Richard Gere, Ed Begley Jr., Beth Grant, Sigourney Weaver, Gary Shandling, Jeff Bridges, Bill Nighy, Don Johnson, and Sissy Spacek. Wow. So many. Yeah. Also this year, uh, some good debuts. We have Julie Andrews, <laughs> Yul Brenner. Richard Burton, Jerry Lewis, Mercedes McCambridge, Liza Minnelli, and James Whitmore. Wow, nice. Of course, Liza Minnelli is only a very young child. Uh, and then some sad deaths. Uh, director Victor Fleming. Ugh, so sad. Uh, William Wright, Wallace Beery, who oh, we've talked yeah. about. 
And Frank Morgan, also, mm. we've talked about several times. Boy. Um, some things to happen in 1949. Um, in the last episode, of course, I talked about the United States versus Paramount Pictures Incorporated, basically the antitrust case in which studios are not allowed to make all the movies, own everything, and also own the theaters that their movies get put in. Best that monopoly. Yeah. So since Paramount is the one that is like the one <laughs> that they decided to focus on in this uh, trial. Paramount. Paramount's like, dude, look around. There's like five other major studios here. <laughs> um, so the next year, they split into two companies, of course, to solve this problem. <laughs> one to produce the films and one to own theaters. Um, and these are Paramount Pictures Corporation and United Paramount Theaters. <laughs> so essentially, they can just sell the films to themselves things never change put them into the theaters and the other studios start to do this as well they follow suit even though they were not like in the uh court case themselves and as i mentioned last week it, it starts a trend of more independently owned theaters and more room for independent studios to contribute and compete so all good things uh, you mentioned uh, Little Women came out. This is the next reboot Woohoo! of Little Women this year. It's released starring June Allison as Joe. Funny enough, it used literally the same exact score and script. I saw script. I didn't realize score. Yep. So yeah. it is literally the same film, essentially. It's new actors. Um, it's new actors and it's in color now. Mm-hmm. This one is my least favorite version of um, little women it's very financially successful um but on the whole not as successful critically um mm. as the original with katherine hepburn as joe little side note how would you rate little women's what's your rating like order of the four little women's there's more than four. Oh, really there's like it's the most adapted work. oh dang it i'm only thinking of the top four there are in fact 13 <laughs> dang it i have not seen many of them Including a couple series. I'm talking like Academy-nominated Little Women. <laughs> you don't have a preference? Um, Not necessarily. Okay. I like Katherine Hepburn. Yeah. I like the most recent Greta Gerwig one. Yeah. I mean, this one is not bad. No, it's not bad at all. No. Uh, especially you since it uses the yeah. same script. I mean, the script is good. Yeah. Like in uh, both of and them. And you can't mess up the story. You really have to work hard. So. Yeah. Okay. Sorry tangent there of course the 90s is also i was very, gonna say we were raised on winona ryder and yeah. christian bale mm-hmm. so i i love that one too yeah, yeah. all okay. good can't go wrong in television history in 1949 the first tv drama is created mm. and it is an anthology drama series called your showtime so there's okay. that <laughs> not a whole lot of indicators about what it's about nope <laughs> Um, then RCA announces in 1949 that they have begun trying to work on a color television. Cool. In 1949, also, George Orwell's 1984 is released, and then he dies a few months later. Just some other things happening in the world. Bertolt Brecht, now back in Germany, of course, no Brecht. is finally able to show Mother Courage and her children in Germany. Uh, Oof. That's ten intense. years following its first premiere. Yeah. That is an intense one. Of course, with his wife uh, in the title role. Then uh, we've mentioned the Tony Awards several times. Just wanted to mention them again. This is the year of the fourth Tony Awards held uh, within a month after this Academy Awards in 1950. And the Cocktail Party, T.S. Eliot, and South Pacific are the two big winners this year. Mm. So on to the film, All the King's Men. Uh, this film had a budget of $2 million, and it had a gross of about $4.5 million. Nice. So not hugely financially successful, but um, critically very successful. So I'm just going to jump into the story of like how this film came to be. Um, Robert Penn Warren originally wrote a play in verse called Proud Flesh in 1936 about a Oof. character named Willie Talos in reference to the evil Talus from uh, the Fairy Queen, like the oh, 1600s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you know that yeah, character. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Whoa. Also, the Proud Flesh is the grossest name I've <laughs> ever heard. <laughs> That's disgusting. Um, so he used Talus from the Fairy Queen and also um, loosely inspired the plot um, by the life of Senator 
Huey P. Long, who was the 40th governor of Louisiana, who was assassinated in 1935. Mm. So literally a year later, he publishes this play. Just wanted to get into Long a little bit. Um, He was a lawyer and then got elected governor during his rise to power in Louisiana. Um, He was a populist Democrat known for protecting the poor and the weak in society. Um, He was a very strict isolationist during the leading up to the war. Um, railing against Wall Street and Big Oil, saying they were the ones secretly driving America and the propaganda into America joining Mm. the war. Um, Of course, he died in 36 before Pearl Harbor was attacked. So not sure what he would have thought then at that point. Um, Because then by that point, a lot of the isolationists turned, Mm. of course. Um, He was hugely instrumental in helping FDR get elected, but then broke ties with him, becoming one of his biggest challengers. Um, He got elected to the Senate himself in 1932, and he was ramping up for a presidential campaign run in 1936, but then he was assassinated. Uh I didn't realize this. I didn't know anything about him. A lot of people think he actually would have won the presidency, um, which would have been very interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting thought experiment. How many people could have been president if they didn't die or were killed before? I don't know. Had a really different America at different yeah. times. Um, it's very interesting because after he got assassinated, his wife Rose actually won his Senate seat. Oh, um, wow. She became the third female senator in American history and the first from Louisiana. Hmm. Um, his political legacy split Louisiana well into the late 60s, even of either pro or anti long politics. Huh. And he basically started a dynasty, like a political dynasty family, um, because his wife was a senator for several terms. His son was a senator in Louisiana, Hmm. and his brother was a governor in Louisiana as well. Wow. Keeping his politics alive through the 60s. Um, So anyways, Warren, the novelist, he then turned this play into a novel and published it 10 years later in 1946 and retitled it All the King's Men. Um, The novel was narrated by a journalist, Jack Burden, who becomes the right-hand man of Willie Stark during his political rise to power. The novel followed both men very equally, a little bit different from the film, Um, and Mm. their stories were way more intertwined, Mm. and they were really like on the same page the whole time in the novel. Interesting. Um, Of course, the novel follows the story of Long getting elected to governor and rising to power, slowly becoming the thing he hates eventually turning into a fascist power grabber until being assassinated. Um, Warren claimed that the novel was not meant to be a political story, strangely what? enough. It's about politics. Um, but just one about power and abuse of power. And that was okay. like the guys he used to like tell the story. Um, he mm-hmm. ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize for it in 1947. And then shortly after that, it was purchased by Columbia for adaptation. Cool. Yeah. So Robert Rawson um, is the director of the film. He was very, very interested in working on the film and had frequently collaborated with Columbia in the years prior. Unfortunately, throughout the 40s, he was a known member of the Communist Party <laughs> and <laughs> uh, was beginning a time when he was sort of being unofficially blacklisted. Yeah. Um, in their first round of everything, they didn't end up calling him to testify. So he was not officially blacklisted yet. He didn't received that until later in the 50s. He was forced to write a private letter to Harry Kahn, the head of Columbia, um, which he like begged him to let him be a part of the film. And he had to state uh, very clearly that he was no longer a member of the Communist Party and that he was basically renouncing any beliefs that he (laughs) used to have. Of course, that was untrue. He just wanted to be a part of the film. So he did what he had to do. Yeah, (laughs) that makes sense. Um, Khan accepted this letter and Rawson produced, directed, and adapted the script, um, sort of breaking the studio model mold um, for something that looks a little more akin to modern Hollywood, Mm -hmm. where we have a lot of people who do this, who produce, direct, they write the script as well. Yeah, interesting. He was more uh, interested in adapting the story to be more and more about the champion of the poor becoming the ultimate aggressor. Mm -hmm. So the book wasn't solely focused on that. It was a lot of other stuff as well, but he wanted to sort of twist it a little bit to focus only on that. Gotcha. Initially, the studio and Rawson wanted John Wayne for the role and sent him the script. Um, He replied saying he was appalled by it and that he would never be caught making something so un-American. Oh, my. 
Which is very strange to me because it feels extremely American. Yeah. I think he... He didn't want it to be like a negative view of American politics. I don't know, really. He Because I, it is critiquing American politics. It is. Um, but yeah, he was like very against it as a film. Well, Mr. Wayne. Yeah, and it's funny because um, instead he took uh, the part, of course, in the sequel, which then ended up being The Sands of Iwo Jima, um, but lost Best Actor Award to Broderick. Crawford for the role he turned down. Well, take that, Mr. Un-American. So Crawford and Mercedes McCambridge were complete unknowns at the time that they were cast. And this film that McCambridge won for supporting Mm -hmm. actress was the first film she ever was in. Oh, my gosh. Um, She was a very popular Broadway and radio actor at the time. And I couldn't really find why she was cast in this, but she was sort of making a transition. It's interesting because... She still ended up having more success in radio and Broadway, mm. okay. even after this. She really didn't make a big film career of mm. herself. As we've said, though, it just depends on how you measure a career. Because, like, I would yeah. say that's a huge. Yeah, she was film a super successful actor. Um, all around, yeah, all around, and you know, added an Academy Award to herself. <laughs> yeah. Crawford was born in Philadelphia. He was born to two vaudeville performers, and he performed with them from childhood, um, becoming a third-generation performer. His grandparents were also vaudevillian performers. Um, He had shared time in the late 30s during the Broadway production of of Mice and Men as Lenny with Lon Chaney Jr. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I can see that. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. they both ended up receiving auditions uh, in front of Lewis Milestone for the film, but then Cheney got the role. Yeah, that's okay. He was so good in it. Yeah. Um, He was contracted with almost every studio at some point in time in the like 30s and throughout the 40s. And it wasn't until he was an independent actor in the late 40s that he actually started to make a name for himself Mm. and was able to win a lot bigger parts. He signed a lengthy deal with Columbia, actually, in conjunction with this film that saw him rise to popularity and then he sort of like changed his type into becoming like an anti-hero bully type in a lot of like political and western films Hmm. Um, he went on to play a lot of cop characters as well so basically the same thing (laughs) yeah he had a better career after this film of course yeah the last like major thing about this film is it was a mess Al Clark was brought in to edit the film after it was finished shooting, and it was a complete disaster. Um, Khan was very worried, as it seemed there was no clear through line, no plot, very poor character development. And he was kind of like upset that he had let Rawson do a doll, because Mm. sort of that was seen as risky at the time to have one person do everything, Mm -hmm. and it was proving to be a problem. (laughs) It was such a mess that Khan considered scrapping the film altogether and just cutting his losses and decided to bring in editor Robert Parrish in just to see if they could make anything else of the film. He ended up stringing a loose plot together out of the massive amount of footage, finally coming up with a cut of the film that had some like semblance of a story, but it was over four and a half hours long still. Mm. Oh, my heavens. Um, Rawson was desperate to keep as much of the footage as possible. He was just like so wrapped up in it since he had done everything. He just couldn't bear to lose any moment of the film. And apparently it was a horrible film (laughs) at the time. Uh. And he and Cohn were really butting heads because Cohn was like ready to trash the film altogether because it was horrible. Hmm. Um, So Rawson came up with a last like last ditch effort to save the film and he told Parrish to find what he considered to be the middle of each scene in the film and then roll back 100 feet from the middle and 100 feet forward from the middle (gasps) of the reel and just cut it oh my gosh what and then just from there string it all together (gasps) what and then they would present that to con and they would all three watch it together and just see what happened (laughs) oh my gosh and he told him to just like not even look at what he was cutting like whatever was exactly a hundred feet on either side from the middle no matter what it was in the middle of a line of dialogue or anything just cut it and stitch it together (laughs) oh my gosh wow so they did this, and uh, when he finished uh, recutting the film, he had a film that ran about 109 minutes. Well, okay. And then Parrish wrote this in his autobiography. 
quote, we ran it for Rawson and discovered his brainstorm had somehow worked. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it all made sense in an exciting, slightly confusing, montage sort of way. We went back and added bits to only three of the scenes. Then we dubbed it and took it to our final preview in Pasadena and were relieved at the audience's enthusiastic reaction. Oh my gosh. It was really interesting reading this story because when we watched it, I was like, this film is a mess. Like, mm. the editing feels really weird. It really jumps around yeah. in a weird way. There's a lot of, like, missed connection, I feel like, between different scenes. Yeah. And this is why. Well, yeah. This is the most chaotic way to make a film. Yeah. Cone <laughs> raved about Parrish, saying he was the most brilliant editor ever because well. he was able to, like, save this <laughs> film. And then it went from, like basically about to be trashed in a four and a half hour picture to winning best picture oh my gosh that's um, wild of course this uh made rawson even more angry at him they didn't really work together well after that sure um because it, it was all rawson's idea like Parrish didn't do anything but just cut it up and yeah, put it together right so that's the story of that film boy oh boy a big mess yeah Pretty surprising that they were able to come out with a successful film. Yeah, most most films would not work if you did that. No. I mean, it's just totally random. Yeah. And Also, how insane that they could do that and shave off three hours worth of film. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, I mean, to me, that's bad filmmaking. Like, that is, you did a bad job making this film. Right. Yeah. You could have edited it in, like, the writing of it or in yeah. the shooting of it, not, like, shot so much garbage yeah um at the end of every episode you know the drill we like to thank the academy for things regarding this episode or this year in film i'll begin and just uh thank the academy for randomly cutting up the film 100 feet uh from the middle of every scene and 100 feet from the end of every scene and every scene is about 200 feet of film and let's just see how it goes <laughs> Flying by the seat of our pants. Yeah. Let's randomly cut together a best picture winner. Can you imagine how some of the other editors felt that like were nominated for best picture? Where it's like, they randomly put together pieces of a film and they got an award for it. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's very infuriating. But it's also like inspiring because like I love moments where it's like, you know what? We have no choice. We got to do something. Well, and what's bizarre also is that it got a nomination for best editing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, nothing's fair in love and film. Yeah. I would like to thank the Academy for retiring whenever you want. <laughs> <laughs> As uh, we've learned from Fred Astaire, that doesn't have to mean anything. And you can retire and then come back and then retire. And to me, in a way, it's inspiring, partially because I doubt myself so much. And so it's nice to see someone who was so famous and renowned doubt themselves, feel like their career was not where it should be or that they were tired or exhausted or whatever, and like be allowed to keep coming back and doing what they want to do. Like I would imagine he had a very happy life altogether. Like, mm -hmm. all, I mean, it sounds so fun, all the things that he got to do. And I'm sure it was stressful and exhausting and he obviously was extremely insecure but to me it's a really remarkable thing to have someone who's so self-deprecating and like everyone around them's like dude you're doing something awesome and he's like oh, it's never good enough it's never good enough and to receive an award like this where it just reiterates that it is good enough and that you know it's okay to step away and come back whenever you need to yeah i would like to thank the academy for loopholes in the law allowing <laughs> the Hollywood <laughs> studio system to just continue on and oh well we can't own all the theaters uh what if we broke our company into two companies and then just sold our films to ourselves mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean and this is still mm -hmm. exactly how it's done today yeah and not even just in the movie business <laughs> yeah it's why films have huge marketing budgets and then like don't turn a profit because like they paid themselves so it looks like they've come out with a loss and then they can claim it on their taxes as a loss and make money back even though they made like a billion dollars in profit <laughs> anyways someday we'll get an expert on here to talk about that but thank you capitalist america and the loopholes <laughs> that allow these things to happen <laughs> I would like to thank the Academy for Little Women 
just <laughs> because we're here. So <laughs> I just love little women. And every version of it is on some level enjoyable. Yeah. And we'll mention many more of the yeah, versions. Yeah, we got more to come. So hang in there. Who's your favorite Joe? Probably Winona Ryder. Yeah, I think me too. But it might just be because that's what I was raised on. So yeah. Who knows? Anyways. Well, that was the show, folks. Yeah. Thanks for jumping back in and not abandoning us when we uh, abandoned you for a week. (laughs) (laughs) We just retired. Yeah, right. And you know what? We're back. (laughs) We just pulled a little Fred Astaire and retired for a week and then, you know, came back with another banger. That was our farewell performance, uh, the 21st (laughs) County Awards. And uh, here we are again. Uh, maybe we'll retire again and then come back for the 23rd Academy Awards next no, week. We will, we'll be here. We won't be anywhere. Please come back. Yes, join us for that episode when we discuss the 23rd Best Picture winner, All About Eve. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.